Welcome back to Season 4, Episode 9 of the FASD Family Life Podcast. This is the show for families raising children and youth with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I am your host, Robbie Seal, and I am an FASD educator, advocate, and a mom of five incredible people, including three teenagers diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So if my 30 years of parenting has taught me anything, you guys, it's that the struggle is real and so is success. You know, I'm thrilled to be with you today. Thank you so much for taking me along with you during your errands, on your walk, in your self-care moments. What an honor it is to be with you. And if you enjoy this podcast, consider being a monthly sponsor because this podcast is supported by listeners like you. And you can check out the link in the show notes that says support the show. This is a special edition of the podcast. I'm here today with two friends of mine who have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. They are Miranda Bazell and Rebecca Tallou. And they're here with me to talk about their responses to the way fetal alcohol spectrum disorder has been mischaracterized and further stigmatized in the wake of the sentencing hearing for the Parkland school shooter, Nicholas Cruz. You may be aware that Nicholas Cruz pled guilty to the February 14, 2018 school shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where he killed 14 students and three school staff members. After a lengthy sentencing hearing this past October, a jury recommended Nicholas Cruz, who is now 24 years old, be sentenced to life in prison, as opposed to the death penalty that was sought by the prosecution. They recommended life in prison due to mitigating circumstances. Well, the gunman who murdered 17 people at that Florida high school was formally sentenced this week on uh, Wednesday, November 2nd, to consecutive life sentences in prison without the possibility of parole. It's some of the things that happened during the uh, sentencing hearing and the fallout on social media and in general media that my guests want to talk about today. It was during the course of the sentencing hearing that Cruz's defense team highlighted the many mitigating factors that they wanted to be considered uh, as his sentence would be determined. And they wanted things to be included, like his troubled childhood, his many diagnoses, which included ADHD, OCD, and autism spectrum disorder. They characterized Cruz as a troubled child um, with a history of being bullied and marginalized, um, with uh, propensity toward cruelty to animals, and even labeling himself as a school shooter even years before the event. It was during this time when Cruz was in custody between 2018 and the sentencing hearing in 2022 that Cruz was assessed for an FASD and was diagnosed with an FASD called Alcohol-Related Neurobehavioral Disorder, or ARND. Dr. Kenneth Lyons-Jones, the father of FASD, a pediatrician who in 1973 first uh, kind of articulated uh, what is fetal alcohol syndrome and wrote about it and has since dedicated his life to working on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, preventing it, diagnosing, teaching, supporting people with this disability. In Dr. Jones's testimony, we learned that Cruz's birth mother had very poor nutrition, limited prenatal care, 
uh, was involved in a high-risk lifestyle and used alcohol and drugs throughout her pregnancy. As a result, Nicholas Cruz had experienced significant traumas prior to his birth. And the prenatal alcohol exposure resulted in alcohol-related neurobehavioral disorder. In his testimony, Dr. Jones explained the primary characteristics of fetal alcohol spectrum disorders and the challenges parents experience raising a child with an FASD, including the tantrums and the dismaturity and the executive dysfunction and the inability for abstract reasoning and so on and so forth. He also talked about the inordinate amount of stigma that persists around this disability. However, in his arguments, the prosecutor in this case tried to discredit the testimony of Dr. Lyons-Jones, the diagnosis of an FASD, and would not permit, permit any testimony about stigma as he argued it wasn't relevant. These in particular were the points that my guests Miranda and Rebecca wanted to address with me today. As I said earlier, Miranda and Rebecca both have an FASD and they say they experience stigma every single day. So let's hear from them. Hello. Oh, my name is Miranda and I am an FASD advocate for a year now. Um, so you can only understand at this point of how hard it is for me to go through this particular topic uh, because I myself have been learning everything about FASD for the first time since my diagnosis in my mid-teens. So um, I could just start with that um, this isn't the first time that um, when it comes to fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, that um, it's been the news in a more of a negative type of way. And it's unfortunate that we have to have this conversation in this type of light to kind of break stigma factors that have been kind of used within the trial. This conversation we're having today was prompted from a post that Miranda had on Facebook. And it was in response to part of the sentencing trial for Nicholas Cruz. And in particular, when Dr. Kenneth Lyons-Jones was on the stand. And uh, for those of you who maybe don't know it, Dr. Jones works at the University of California, San Diego. He's the pediatrician along with another doctor who discovered or, or defined fetal alcohol syndrome back in 1973. And so he's the first one to, to put words to that and, and to discover it. And then as Dr. Jones spoke about in the, in the trial, there's been more and more understanding of what is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or what are they? I say is because in Canada, we say FASD is a diagnostic term. In the States, uh, and you will have heard of the trial, Dr. Jones says FASD is not a diagnostic term. And so I get, there's confusion in this world, but that's okay. We can explain this. In the United States, and it used to be this way in Canada too. So this is just language. So this is okay, you guys. Fetal alcohol spectrum disorders is said to be an umbrella term. An umbrella meaning that it's an overarching term and under which there are other diagnoses that fall and they are a spectrum. It's a spectrum, but not from worst to least, just a spectrum of different characteristics. One is not worse than another. They are just different characteristics. So as Dr. Jones was talking about, he said there is uh, FAS, which is fetal alcohol syndrome, and that is the person who has been prenatally exposed to alcohol and has the growth limitations and the face dysmorphology um, that goes with prenatal alcohol exposure. Um, and then there is partial FAS. And then there is 
um, alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder, and then there is alcohol-related birth defect. That's why we say FASDs uh, in the United States. Miranda's response on Facebook was to the way she felt Dr. Jones was being treated and the way that the uh, prosecution was really trying to attack and, and take apart his testimony. And part of that was that they were focusing so much on the face. What is it about the face? And uh, Cruz doesn't have the face. While we don't want to center too much on, on Cruz, that was the jumping off point of this conversation. But we, what we do want to center on is the misunderstandings about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, the characterization that somebody with FASD, in this case, he was faking it, or somebody with FASD has the face, I'm putting in quotation marks, of FASD, or that somebody with FASD has to have a low IQ. Those are all false. Miranda, why don't you talk about what is FASD and what you know to be true? Uh, well, just like as you said, um, FASD is an umbrella term. For the longest time since um, FAS has been discovered from Lyons Jones and his colleague, it's just been sitting on the fetal alcohol syndrome all the time. So you see it everywhere. People talk about it all the time. Some people even think that it somehow disappeared. Like, has anyone ever heard of fetal alcohol syndrome? Like, what happened to it? Where did it disappear to? It's still here, but it's because a lot of people think that it disappeared somehow because no one's talking about it enough. It's such an umbrella term. All of us really range differently, whether we have facial differences or we don't, and how um, we're affected differently. Because there is six diagnostic terms. There is fetal alcohol syndrome. Um, so that's FAS. There's PFAS, which is partial FAS. There is ARBD, alcohol-related birth defects. There is ARND, which I have, and that's alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. There is SEAE, that's static I cannot pronounce this word. Encephalopathy? Uh, yes. <laughs> I can't say it either. Yes. It's, it's, I can't pronounce, but it's static, that word, alcohol exposed. And then there's NDAE, which is neurobehavior disorder, alcohol exposed. Um, and the last four that I mentioned, they have stars on them. And that is under evidence of prenatal alcohol exposure. Um, so those are under those diagnoses. It sounds complicated. There's there's so many different terms under the umbrella. Um, but I think why possibly, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but but just what I'm seeing, because people uh, growing up as a kid with FASD, and, you know, we, we get picked on. It's really common with us being bullied in school. Um, and it's very common when people are bullied because they look different. And people really like to focus on the FAS because they look different than other people. And they like to pick on people with that. And it's unfortunate because we're, here we are 50 years later and we're still trying to crash that. Yeah, people do pick on people who look different or they push them away. But as you were talking about, Miranda, most people with FASD don't even look different. Uh, Miranda and Rebecca, neither of you have the facial features that would we would associate with FAS. Yet you both have alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorders. Is that correct? So I was actually diagnosed with um, fetal alcohol syndrome. So I do have the facial features. And as an infant, I did like significantly, but over like with age, they. Yeah, that's so. right. Over age, they fade. Okay. So you're diagnosed with fecal syndrome and Miranda's uh, alcohol-related neurodevelopmental disorder. See, here we are. We're sitting here. <laughs> and here's part of the stigma. Somebody with FAS is going to be extremely disabled. That's that's part of the stigma. Rebecca, mm. let's, why don't you tell me just like five bullet points about the things you have accomplished in your life? So I am, you know, I'm 42 years old. 
I am an author. I created a fundraiser, um, a race, a 5K. That's two years running now. Um, I work full-time for an insurance agency. I'm married. I have kids. Um, I have my struggles, but the stigma that sticks with us is insane. And just when I thought maybe, 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 possibly we were headed in the right direction and starting a conversation to end the stigma, you know, the whole trial. And that put us back a lot. So um, not all of us are have a low IQ and are unable to do anything and need to be put in an institution. Exactly. And that that's part of the conversation here is, you know, like I said, a person with FAS is not necessarily more disabled than a person with somebody else, some other diagnosis. What it is, is these diagnosis descriptors of the characteristics that you have within your brain and within your body. And that's how somebody gets to have that diagnosis. And it isn't that one is just by the label more severe than the other. So that that's important to be clear. Um, let me ask you both too. We're talking about stigma. If I say my child has FASD, I get like, or prenatal alcohol exposure. I'm like, oh my God, what kind of woman would do that to her child? Well, first of all, you never even heard about that before. So how are you so judgy? But also how about the woman who didn't know she was pregnant and she had a couple of cocktails on a weekend. And then on another weekend, she had a couple of cocktails. That's how it can happen. It could be anybody. It's there, but by the grace of God, go I. That's how this diagnosis happens, you know, because if, if you're a woman of childbearing years and you're drinking alcohol and you're unaware you're pregnant, that's the perfect storm for creating FASD. Now, there's also those circumstances where the woman who is pregnant is also in active addiction. And that's also a perfect storm for FASD. But not every child, not every individual, I should say, because FASD, again, is not a childhood illness. And that's also too where we get stuck with stigma. That's a childhood thing and you grow out of it. No, it's permanent brain injury. Sometimes there's permanent birth defects as well. This is, this is lifelong. What we do know too is that there's no safe amount of alcohol and there's no safe timing of alcohol. You were talking about stigma. Rebecca, you learned when you were in your thirties, I think it was that you had FASD. Mm-hmm. What kind of stigma did you face? So um, when I was diagnosed, I mean, for me, it was a relief because so many quirks that I have um, were answered. I would tell somebody, oh, I was diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome. And they'd be like, oh. And I was like, you know, for me, it's a lot like ADHD. You know, I'm very impulsive and I have math issues and social issues. And then a lot of people would be like, well, I do too. And I don't have it. It's not so much stigma. I don't know what you would call that, but it bothers me to no end because it's a lack of understanding. And I think lack of understanding leads to stigma. So a lot of people that I talk to are like, well, I have, you know, whatever. I have the same things you do, but my mom didn't drink. I said, okay, well, my mom did. And I I do have these things and it can be due to alcohol. Yeah. So that's the issue I face. So I think lack of understanding definitely leads to stigmas. I face that every day. So I'm hesitant to tell people I have it. That's so honest. People say, well, I, you know, I'm like that too. So, so it's an excuse then, you know, this diagnosis is an excuse, which is kind of what came out in that trial as well. And it's not, it's a reality. You have brain injury and you have probably, if you have FAS and you've got uh, indicators within your body too, it's not an excuse. You really do have challenges. You shared a little bit of the challenges. So you have, as you said, impulsivity, trouble with math, 
I think one time we talked before about cooking. How's cooking for you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I can I can follow directions, but it takes me a very long time and I will still mess things up. If I don't have directions in front of me, forget it. Or I think it's something simple like a smoothie. Honest to goodness, I did this the other day. I don't need a recipe. It's yogurt and milk and that's it and fruit. Well, you know, you do have to put a certain amount of each in. So, um, yeah, so it's not reading the directions or reading them incorrectly. And yeah, it, and there's too many things going on at once. Like the cooking itself overwhelms me. It overwhelms you. Talk about the sensory stuff. You have sensory stuff too. Yep, I do. Um, so I'm a, um, I'm a sensory seeker. So I love weight. I like, oh, I have weighted blankets and that helps me center myself and get back to, you know, back to being relaxed if I am overwhelmed. Um, very loud noises that I am not expecting. I have um, what babies have when they're first born. It's called the Babinski reflex. Like I just like, I kind of get startled. I do that startle reflex and like I'll jerk really, you know, my head will jerk really fast. That there's certain sounds I also don't like, like nails on a chalkboard, but a lot of people don't like that. That's the um the sensory stuff. And too many so, things happening at once too, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. You know what's funny? I never even thought of that as sensory, but yes, if lots of things happen at once, I fall apart. If I have somebody asking me a question, but I've just started making breakfast for my child, it it falls apart because I I can't filter what to do first. Mm-hmm. Up in chaos and ends up in chaos, and that's the chaos of the executive dysfunction. Yeah. Can I ask you, Rebecca? We're going to put you on the stand right now. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I do. Are you a criminal? No, no I am not. Say that bolder. No, no I'm not. <laughs> I am not a criminal. No, I have never, ever. the The only thing I did, and I didn't know it was wrong, the bolts and nuts that fall on the floor at hardware stores. If they were on the floor, I used to collect them. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers. But I never put them out of the bins. See? I never put them in my pocket. So you weren't stealing. Well, you were just like. Been, no, I've never been a criminal. And I do have fetal alcohol syndrome. There you go. Thank you for saying that. I think that's kind of one of the things we wanted to get out there. Yeah. yeah. Miranda, let's talk about you for a minute, my dear. You said that you have ARND. Yes, I do. We're in court of law here. We're going to pretend for a minute. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. Yes, yes. you do. <laughs> Are you a criminal? One billion percent not. No, <laughs> you're not a criminal. And I don't know if anybody thinks I'm being a jerk by asking that. I'm not being a jerk. We were talking about this earlier and we're just playing around. Um, no, you're not a criminal. And that's part of the thing you guys want to get out because we were reading some articles together and it said that a lot of people with FASD are criminals and we want to go bullshit. Bullshit. That's not true. There are criminals who have FASD. That's a different conversation. And there might be a high rate of people who are incarcerated who have FASD. That's also true. But that doesn't mean that most people with FASD are criminals. I would argue that most people with FASD are not criminals. Miranda was saying that she wanted to talk a little bit about Dr. Jones' testimony on, I think it was day 23 of the sentencing trial for Cruz and his testimony, what she thought about that and then how he was treated afterwards. That really bothered uh, Miranda. So Miranda, go ahead. Uh, yes. Um, yeah. So I watched uh, the whole trial and um, at least it was good to know that I wasn't the only one from the public that 
felt this way because just the way he was treated, him being called in as a expert of FASD, but then being questioned almost kind of like that he didn't know what he was talking about. Um, and also they're not really the best at and, like asking the questions. Um, but the thing is, is that when he actually got into a topic about talking about the stigma of FASD and how that affects individuals, they basically just told him like, you know, don't talk about that. Like you're off topic. And that part, that's where it's like, he was being shunned to not talk about awareness point view of FASD of like how much stigma it has. It's like, oh, like, you know, we have to stay on topic here and they go on other things that are unnecessary. And I'm just like, man, like you, you call in this guy and you're just like not letting him speak facts here. And then the thing is there, um, there was a point where they actually asked a question a second time that he already answered the first time. And so, and, and I could tell by his facial, like he kind of did a little chuckle. It's like, well, if you remember, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, <laughs> cause it was actually kind of comical, but he, but he was so calm. He was so calm the whole entire way. And there was a point where I don't know what his name was. It was kind of like they went into recess and the judge actually asked, I don't know what his name is. I'll just say he's a bald, he's one of the bald guys. He was in the background and I don't know the name, but one of the prosecuting attorneys. Yes. And you can see him in the background. He's just kind of like this every time, like, like he was just kind of like, what, what is this guy talking about? Or, or this is so unnecessary. Like every time he said something and the judge actually put him in his place because just before recess um, of the stigmatizing question, the guy says that the facts that Dr. Jones said were fine, but by quote, he goes on and on and on. And he's also having a tantrum himself. And he quoted the tantrum himself because Dr. Jones was talking about, you know, how it, you know, how some individuals with FASD can have tantrums. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. when he quoted that, like, well, he's, he was not having a tantrum. He was casually talking and discussing like what, so I, that blew me away. I mean, like he was also getting stigmatized in that sense of the education. I I was like, man, if I was sitting there and you know, this, how, this is how we as advocates feel when we're trying to educate. And this guy, he has not retired. He is not retired. He's been doing this for many, many years. And the reason why he doesn't want to retire is because he sees the stigmatization. Very good point. I saw that part of the trial, too, where the prosecuting attorney was sitting in the background making all these big gestures like, come on, this is way off topic. Well, the point is Dr. Dr. Jones was trying to give some context. It was, you know, trying to explain prosecution was doing their best to diminish I think what Dr. Jones was saying, uh, as is something of their role to do that, like uh, as part of the drama of court, I, I suppose, and also the obligation of the defense to have a thorough and robust defense and the prosecution, likewise, to have a thorough and robust prosecution of, of the accused. But I recognize what you're saying. And to minimize, and this was Dr. Jones's po- point, I believe, part of his point was that the stigma around this diagnosis And then also the stigma of the birth mother and the stigma of the individual who has FASD is so profound. And that is precisely what gets in the way of giving people a proper diagnosis, uh, adequate supports from childhood all the way through adulthood and compassion. And so even if we're talking about Nicholas Cruz and his mother in some of the comments were like made out to be monsters and made out to be, you know, they should be executed and they should, should, should. And these are the things that get said when people are angry and, and upset. And of course, 
for the sake of this conversation, we're not focusing on them, but this is also the focus of people of FASD, you know, uh, the stigma that you, that you guys face, you know, and, and whether you even want to say if your child has FASD or, or you want to say that you have FASD, I should say, or even for myself, I've learned when I'm trying to advocate for my kids, let's say they've got a brand new school teacher or something. I don't say they have FASD and not because I'm ashamed, but because there's instantly a roadblock. How about you guys? Do you find that too? Rebecca, you're nodding your head. Go ahead. I had that happen when I was working with the company. I got a new boss and she had adopted a son. So I thought we had common ground. I was adopted and I thought we could, you know, make a strong relationship, uh, boss, you know, employee. So I decided I would be honest with her and be like, you know, I got diagnosed with fetal alcohol syndrome and I don't have, uh, exact evidence. But as soon as I said that she started to treat me differently, I couldn't do anything right. Um, she actually was the reason I quit and I had been there 10 years. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, unfortunately it's a label that people don't understand. And it's a label that we have a lot of work to do to get people to understand. That was the motivation for this recording, I think, was to talk about how this is making you feel mm-hmm. and then and the frustration. And then how is it we move the conversation forward? And I think one of the ways we do that is just by getting out there and having this conversation, you know, that the stigma does get in the way. When a person is first diagnosed with FASD, especially if they're a child, perhaps the parent might feel really hopeless, like, oh, my God, then there's going to be no hope. If you've read one article about somebody, why would you have ever read an article about somebody in the news? It's only going to be bad news, right? That's what gets the media is the bad news. But what about all the other people who are doing well in life who never are in the news, right? Like, do you guys make the newspaper? Do I make the newspaper? We're just going about living our life. Well, Rebecca does because she's a superstar. We all know that. Rebecca makes headlines. She does because she's written a book called Tenacity. I read that book. It was a great book. And then Rebecca in 2021 started the Run Fast, and that was to raise awareness for FASD. And then she did it again this year, trying so hard to break stigma and to raise awareness. And Miranda, come in and jump into the conversation. I I just want to give like Rebecca a major platform for that because I mean, You know, we see like runs for cancer research and so many runs for so many different things, but there was never a run for FASD. And you came up with that idea. I I didn't even know that even existed until I really got involved in this this year because you just started it, right? It's only on the second year. Um, and wow. I mean, that's, I mean, thank you. Just, just thank you for, for, for people like me. And of course, you're already on the spectrum too, but it just like, cause I, I've spent my whole entire life like feeling alone and I, you starting that, like you're the only person that came up with this idea. It's amazing. Just, just thank you so much. And I just, I can't wait to see how it's going to grow in the next like 10 plus years. Sweet great. <laughs> thank you for your support, lady. But I, I plan to do it next year though. <laughs> yeah, I did it this year. I got the t-shirt, mm-hmm. got the medal, you know, mm-hmm. proudly wore my FASD t-shirt. Mm-hmm. You inspired me. I had an FASD walk here in Edmonton to raise mm-hmm. awareness for FASD. Yes. Yeah. And so we're trying, right? We're trying to raise awareness and we're trying to stand proud. That's the other thing too, right? Stand proud, get out of the shadows and stand proud. Yeah, I've got FASD. Watch me shine. What does it take for a person who has FASD to shine? Rebecca? Um, Honestly, uh, so I would say you need a good, I think a good support system because I think, well, I think inherently we can all shine on our own. But I think with a good support system, that leads to, it gives us confidence. 
And that good support system relies on our strengths and lets us find our strengths. So I think that's what leads to helping us shine. And I also think our defaults and our struggles help us shine because they make us realize different pathways to take to be successful, but definitely support, which Robbie rocks at it. So, yeah, thank you. So what are some of the supports? Can can we pivot to that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Like what one or two practical supports you need maybe every day Mm -hmm. or routinely in your home that helps you manage some of those uh, challenges that you have? Um, so I, um, I personally, I have my husband and, uh, he's been wonderful since I was diagnosed. He's gotten to know about the, um, the spectrum and he sees it now in me. So he gets up every morning with the kids. He gets them breakfast. We split the chores to the ones that don't overwhelm me. So he cooks and he's amazing. He makes the kids breakfast and their lunches. He knows the schedules of what's going on. And then, for me personally, I use calendars. As long as I write things on the right day, it, they're very helpful, extremely helpful. But just like having somebody to help you and to be a partner with you. Um, that's what, yeah, that's what's helped a lot. That's brilliant. And respect you as a still an equal partner. Cause that's yeah. what I'm hearing too. He respects you as an equal partner. That's what partnerships are, right? That's what they yeah. are. Is somebody else shines, somebody that uses their strengths. In his case, he can handle the chaos of the morning and he can cook the breakfast. Mm-hmm. He can get the kids off to school. And then you do some of the other jobs. You know, that's wonderful. And calendars. Absolutely. Miranda, how about you? What's a couple of things that you need in your life every day or kind of routinely just to help you, you know, do your best? We always talk about the external brain. We need help with that because our, our brains, <laughs> it's all over the place. So it's good to have that side help and support. Same with Rebecca. I mean, in my own own personal experience, it sucks because I knew I always needed to be in supportive environments. My doctor even said this, that clearly not being in good environments really aggravates my symptoms and depression, anxiety. Um, and it's only just recently that I reconnected with a former boyfriend that we split in high school. And he's the only person that's ever really understood me. I mean, not to a full extent because he's still learning, but understand that like it's the, the, the whole Q-tip stop taking it personally thing. Um, and it's, it's a working progress, but like, it's the fact that like, like they care and they want to do that they can and learn about it. So, um, my life right now has been the best. So having that support coming up with a podcast idea, no one's ever done that with like me before because it's yeah. Anyway, it's so stuff like that. So it supports understanding, you know, being patient. It can be hard. I can struggle with being patient, but it's, it's just like a teamwork thing doing this advocacy and learning from other people like Rebecca and then um, parent advocates like you, that also helps me too, actually, because now I feel like I'm not alone anymore. So with my mental health, even though it can be wonky, I don't know where I'd be right now if I didn't have any of this um, along with you guys as well. So even if it's online, it still helps. So that's a good support because I don't see much like, you know, you go to a clinic, like it has a big FASD sign on it to go to, to get like, Counselors that are, you know, trained in FASD to have like that kind of link FASD connection. I did a lot of research. I only found like two counselors here that that has an FASD type training, but it costs a lot of money. There's a lot of barriers to getting the right kind of help. Uh, Yeah. Like you guys are probably said, like get, get counseling and you're like, okay, where? 
who understands? And I know for myself, uh, when my kids got a diagnosis, there was a lot of recommendations. But like you, nobody held my hand and helped me understand any of those recommendations. They said, uh, maybe play therapy or therapy over time to help kids with this and that. And I said, okay, wonderful. Is there a therapist who understands FASD? And even those giving me the recommendation said, I'm not aware of one. And so I'm holding my breath, like even right now, as I'm saying, I'm like, ah, where do I go then? You know, and who understands the parent and what the parent's going through? Who understands the individual and what they're going through? And an individual who gets diagnosed when they're little has the opportunity to get so many supports if, 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 if they're around. And so often they're not around, but at least there can be an awareness of, okay, my child is not being bad. These temper tensions aren't because my child is bad. My child is overwhelmed. How, what do we do differently here? What do we do differently as parents? What do we do differently in the environment? What do we do differently at school? And when we can learn, and let me just get on my soapbox here for a moment, which means I'm going to preach and I'm going to teach. But if we can just, when as parents, when we get that understanding that, okay, my child has FASD, first of all, that's a medical diagnosis. So you have to change everything, just like you would if your child had diabetes. You have to change everything. Schedules are incredibly important. Structure and routine are incredibly important. Patience and understanding and becoming that safe place and realizing you can't parent top down like you used to with a neurotypical kid. It has to be a lot of collaboration, a lot of support. So just like you both were talking about playing to the strengths, what is my kid really good at and celebrate that and put in the structures and the support for those areas where there's weakness. And that's across the lifespan. And it's not like, well, when my kid is eight, they should be able to forget about it. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. When they're 16, they should be able to. When they're 18, they should be able to. No, they're not because this person has a brain injury. This person has a brain injury. You will learn and you will grow in your own time, but we can't say when you're 18, you should be able to because it's not how it works. And you know, for those people who don't have those kinds of supports in their life growing up. And and I know, Rebecca, you had a really supportive family. And I know, Miranda, by talking with you, you didn't have that supportive family. Um, And having that support from early on makes a really big difference toward some of those healthy outcomes. Really big difference. But here you are, Miranda, without that strength, without that wraparound support, here you are as a young woman in your early 20s, and you are striving to create a really good life for yourself. You're not addicted you're not homeless, you're not a criminal. And I point out those things because those are the things that can be the tertiary outcomes, the outcomes of a person who has FASD that's unsupported. But again, it's not guaranteed. I have spoken to other people on my podcast. Chris Fillion is one who comes to mind. He's in Canada and he grew up in foster care as well. And then at 18, boom, you're out and on your own. And I mean, he grew up without supports. And he he did a little, you know, his path went a little sideways for a while. He spent a little bit of time in jail, but he shared with me that somebody there, one of the criminal justice workers kind of took him under his wing and realized, oh, if I keep Chris busy, then he's going to do better. And Chris learned that with structure and support, he can do really well. And he has continued to, he's, he's, he's living a great life. And, and that's the point, right? Like, even if people do get off the path a little bit, it's, it's still not forever. We can still have hope. spot on. Agree. Um, You know, everybody struggles differently. Neurotypicals struggle differently. We all go down different paths. But with when it comes to a different brain, we do need a little help. I've actually still seen articles where they kind of expect us still to be more independent, whether they're still learning. Not every 
individual with FASD, like they, they can be, they can be great in like doing independent stuff, um, depending on like which categories. Me, I am clearly not the best at being independent. I always need that side support. I've been alone most of my whole life. And like, I mean, I did live alone by myself for four years, but I, but that was after foster care. I wasn't, I didn't have any of that. So even despite I had no supports, I just somehow just kicked right through it. It was hard, but I, I just kicked through it. And just like, just no matter who knocked me down, I always got back up, even though it just went on forever up until this point in my life. Um, but this advocacy thing really helped with that. But this is why it's such a huge link. It's a huge link with, with foster care, the medical system, the justice system with the lack of education, because we don't need one, like, especially when it comes to diagnosis, all that stuff. We don't, we, we need more than one person to help us out here. Like it takes a team um, because we live our lives going to the doctors. And then if we're, you know, counseling, all that kind of stuff. So it's like, nobody knows what the heck it is. Like you meet all these people and they cock their heads at me. What is, what is FASD? And it's, it's the most, just like Rebecca it, in like, and you get looked at weird and, um, and then they expect you to do things. This is a really common trait with FASD and it's so frustrating. We have to, it's like, we, we still have to deal with this all the time. And when it's in the news like this, this is where we back to this conversation again, the lack of awareness, education and starting all over again. And the frustrating thing is since it is the most common, I see autism in the news a lot. And they'll be like happy stories. Like, have you seen my happy stories? Like how successful, um, I hate to say the, the like an ego kind of thing here, but, but where's our platform? <laughs> it's like, like you don't see it and it's frustrating. Like I'm seeing documentaries on Netflix on autism, all this stuff. And we're not seeing any of us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know I watch a show called Love on the Spectrum and that's a Netflix yeah. special, right? Yes. And it's really, it's really awesome. I like watching it. And that's about people who are young adults, young or older adults, even who are on the autism spectrum and they're dating. You, do you see what they have there? In this case, they all have their families supporting them. They have stable family environments that they're coming from. And they also have, in this case, they have a dating coach. And that helps them with the social skills and they have, you know, coaching and stuff. And there's obviously been some kind of matchmaking that's happened. So there's a lot of structure and support, but I like watching it because I learn from it. But then when I do, I'm like, can you imagine with FASD, like it could be really awesome. But then as I got to think about that, how cool would that be though? Hey, ladies, as you're coming up and you're a young adult, what if you did have a relationship coach? What if you did have that? Like how helpful could that be? It's amazing because when I was in high school, um, I dated my track coach and he was twice my age and I didn't know any better. I mean, that was young. I mean, we're talking 18. So I don't know if you'd want a dating coach at 18, but with our brains where we are half the age, um, half the emotional age is half of our chronological age. Yeah. It could be so helpful. And then I had other relationships that were, (laughs) so it just, that would be very helpful. It just help you navigate, like, it could be like relationships that way. It could be just navigating mm-hmm. friendships, social, social, yeah, social stuff. Yeah. How about, you know, as, how about job coaches? You know, as, as a person comes out of high school, what about like, what happens then? And what about, how do I fill out college applications? Or if I'm going to go live in a dorm, how do I do that? Exactly. Like, mm-hmm. you know, exactly. And, and that's the thing. I like what you, we just bridged over to autism for a moment and not to steal any, any light from autism or not. And I know that's not what you mean or to take anything, uh, any funding away, because gosh, no, that's not what we're saying. We're not competing. We're just saying uh, us too, with, without competing. Mm-hmm. We're saying people with FASD, 
have a permanent brain injury need support to do well. Yeah. But you know what? Every human being needs support. Nobody lives independently. If they do, they are a miserable so-and-so. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yep. So I think we have to like shift the conversation from independence and have that as the expectation. Because what the heck does that mean anyway? How about an interdependence, a healthy interdependence? Relationships are important. And that's one thing that we've come to realize too, in particular in FASD research. But that's what you both have talked, talked about. Even in the absence, Miranda, growing up of healthy relationships, you found the value in a healthy relationship. Amazing partner with Jordan. But also you were saying the importance of relationships, even in, in virtually, like Miranda and I have never actually met in person. We meet every week, almost every week in a support group. And Rebecca, I've talked with you a few times on the screen. And so we build the sense of community and we actually build friendships, even if we're not sitting mm-hmm. in the same room having coffee together. And we need that. We need that to keep going and to, and Miranda, I think we need that so we don't feel so beat down uh, in the yeah. wake of these kinds of stories too. This is where it goes back to having that connection. Like I wish I had a, cause I loved having a youth care worker in, in foster care. I, even as an adult at 28, I still love to go out with a person that has experience in FASD that I could just go out for a coffee and just kind of like, like, you know, just kind of talk about my the thing because we still struggle with this. And you know what? I want to advocate for all people with disabilities because it's not even just us that even people on the spectrum, whether they're in a wheelchair or anything like that, we're like always so discriminated in so many different ways. And, but it just, in our experience, we're really shoved in the back burner. Cause like, I mean, when I went to my neurological test this year, when I got out of the cab, because I'd never been here before and I looked and right next to the building that I'm going to, it's an autism center. And it just, I just had that feeling where it's just like, you feel alone because I don't see any FASD centers. And I'm like, man, that'd be great for me to go to a place. I mean, I know they do have an Asante center here that has that, but like, but you just see so much autism centers and places all the place. It's just, it's not very often they could just go to and have that. Would that be nice <laughs> if there was a place where you could go, it says as it was FASD center. It was a place maybe you could just hang out with somebody who understands whether it's somebody who has FASD or uh, like a career coach or a relationship coach or a psychologist. Like it could be all kinds of things. That would be amazing here. So here I have to put in a plug for Lauren Richardson. She lives, I know Miranda, you live in British Columbia, Canada, and Lauren does as well. And Lauren Richardson is also an adult who has FASD and she does a lot of advocacy work. You both have heard of her before. And she's presently raising money to, to open an FASD center in British Columbia. And because she's saying the same thing, we're alone. There's no place for us to go to connect, to have resources, or just to have community. So she's got a big dream. So we just got to throw that plug in here. I'll put a link in the show notes too to her GoFundMe page for the FASD Center that she wants to open in British Columbia. And Rebecca, she's just rocking it with her her book and touring all around and all the podcasts and her FASD run, you know, and me with my podcast trying to get it all over the world to raise awareness that we're not going to be ashamed and we're not going to stand in the shadows anymore. And we're not all criminals. We're not to be feared. We're to be loved and accepted and integrated into the whole society. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Um, this is why this, like this whole thing is like, that's why I'm all, because my FAC is all over the place. This is why it's so, because it, even just in generally, like it's still a little bit uncomfortable to talk about um, with this whole episode. And that's why it's struggling. Cause like, 
Because it's that same fear, even if you meet someone that's new and then you have to explain to them what you have because people look at you weird and why my brain's slow and I'm conversating. So I have to explain it. And then you're scared every single time for me and my experience, because I, I just know, you know, nine times out of 10 that I'm going to get a reaction. Like, I don't know if Rebecca has felt this, like, you know, growing up, um, because when you, you can meet certain people and you explain what you have. And so things that I can't do, like drive a car. I've been questioned. It almost feels like someone's backing me into a corner and then tie, like putting a chain around it. And they're standing in front of me and they, they're like questioning me harshly. Like, okay, I know the other day you said you can't drive a car. And I asked why I explained it the best way I could. But then the next day later, they asked me, okay, so can you really like fully explain exactly why you can't drive a car? But without asking me about FASD, how it affects me, it's just really about what I can't really do and why I can't do it. And it's, it's, it's an awkward situation to be in when you meet mm-hmm. new people that don't understand. Cause I'm sitting there on the couch and I'm like, I'm going to go through another, uh, uh, what's that word? Interrogated. Oh yeah. It feels like an interrogation. Every time. Uh, Rebecca's <laughs> nodding her head. Let's turn it over Rebecca. So I think it's a little different. I think the older you get, um, people get older I don't have that feeling, but again, I was not, um, if I was your age, Miranda, and I found out I had FASD or NFASD, um, I think I would have the same reactions from people because I'm in my forties. So I think the people that I associate with, I love hanging out with younger people, but on the people I associate with, they know, I, I guess they don't they don't ask as many questions. And I think because they're older and I hate wiser, maybe they just, they don't, they don't interrogate. Um, And I also think at that point, you know, they have children of their own. So then they're struggling with things of their own. So I think I have not been interrogated. And when I was your age, I didn't have the diagnosis. So I would feel alone and awkward, but because I didn't know what the heck was wrong with me. So, um, but yeah, but Sorry to interrupt you there, Rebecca. Can you talk about that? Because I think that's something that maybe us parents don't understand or we 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 can only see from the outside, right? So we do the best we can, but we can only see from the outside. Talk about what that was like, what you felt like. And, and Miranda's hinted at this too. I knew it was, Miranda would say, I knew it was more than a learning disability. Rebecca, can you talk about that too? Yeah. So it like I was, you know, I was adopted at birth. So I always thought I was horrible in math. Like it, it's, it was a struggle, but it was the struggle that it was the same mode of operations, but you used different fruits and I still wouldn't get it. So it was weird. And the social thing, I always wanted to be everybody's best friend. And then people would get awkward and scared and like, stop talking to me. And I just assumed that that was part of my genetics. I really did. I thought it was just who I was. And so did my parents. And then they just thought I was a little overbearing trying to be friends with everybody. So there were things that just didn't click. And then in college, I had a group of friends. I had my roommates, but they were very close. Um, And I'm close with them now. But back then I was, what, 20 and I was emotionally probably 12, maybe. I was on the outside. Like they were always very close and always and I was always on the outside and I would try to interact but it was forced and it was strange. And I never knew why I felt that way. I just think my brain works differently. 
So there's already insight there, like awareness and insight. And I think that's important to talk about because we don't, we don't know what it is like on the inside. And so it's really helpful. And some parents feel like, I don't know if I should tell my child, or I don't know when to tell my child. Rebecca. That's hard. Um, I think now I'm guessing if my parent, my parents, they were given the the diagnosis of fetal alcohol syndrome when I was an infant. It was put on the table, but it was taken off. So I had all the facial features and I was really, really sick um, constantly for like 18 months. But then I started to get better. And that was in 1980. So they took the FAS diagnosis off the table. Plus, they didn't know my birth mom. I think if my parents had known I had FAS or an FASD, I think they would have told me young like they told me about my adoption. I don't think there's a right or wrong, though. I don't. I think every family is different and every child's different. So whether you tell them early or late, it depends on what they can handle. I think it's I think sometimes, though, we parents might feel like they they're they don't know how or they don't want to label it. They, they want to spare their child. And all they want to get at is, you know what, your child already feels different. They already know that they're struggling. So sometimes giving them the the reason why, then they don't have to feel, and I've heard this over and over again, the person doesn't have to feel, oh, I'm not stupid. Right. My brain is different. Exactly. I agree with you 100%. Miranda, did you want to say something there? You know, we're already in a support group and pretty much a lot of individuals have the same thing, even when they were not diagnosed yet, because I wasn't diagnosed in the teens. Before that, when I didn't know, it was kind of like the same thing. Like I didn't know like anything. And so it felt even more discriminatory because I like, it was just like a learning disability. So teachers were just like, but why is it like to this extent, if it's just a learning disability, why it's this to this extent. So, um, with learning and stuff like that, it's always been a struggle. So, um, yeah. So just kind of like, uh, from what I think if I cut all mixed up, probably, uh, for what Rebecca said of like, being pre-diagnosed of like not understanding um, and try to explain because you can't really, because I guess it was, if I try to think before I got diagnosed, um, people are questioning why I can't do certain things, but I didn't have that diagnosis yet. So that was just more frustrating. I think we had a really great conversation. Thanks for being here to talk about this. I hope this has been a good platform for you to talk about um, the importance of breaking down stigma and recognizing that people with FASD deserve compassion. Uh, we need to get rid of the stigma and just talk about what this disability really is, what the origins really are, and then celebrate also the strengths because the person who has FASD has challenges, but certainly has strengths and gifts and abilities as well. And that's where we need to shine the light. Uh, this is a legit disability and it's person first. It's not disability first. Well said. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Well said. Thank you. Many, many thanks to my friends, Rebecca and Miranda, who are willing to join me on the podcast to talk about their feelings. And uh, as it pertains to the case, uh, the indignation, uh, particularly that Miranda felt um, with Dr. Jones not being respected um, in his testimony by the prosecutor. And both of them feeling that we've really lost ground in our advocacy work, raising awareness of FASD. Uh, as a neurodevelopmental disability and the stigma that chokes out our ability to kind of effectively raise awareness and have people tune in and and pay attention. And so that's why I wanted to have them on the show today to give them a, a platform and an opportunity to talk and, and to really stand up against the stigmas that say, you know, everybody with FASD has a low IQ. 
that's not true by by the standard. Some will, but majority of people with FASD have an IQ within the mid range of standard IQ testing, um, and that's not a reliable marker of a person's capacity. Uh, because we know that individuals with FASD struggle with executive dysfunction, abstract reasoning, memory deficits, sensory processing disorders, affect regulation. Um, and then there's all the comorbidities, as you've heard in a previous episode, 428 documented comorbidities uh, along with a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. And 90% of individuals with FASD will have a co-occurring mental health disorder. So it's it's a complex disability and we need to have the space to be able to talk about it and have it respected and uh, taken seriously. Uh, also to recognize that FASD is not a, just a childhood disability that so many people might think that it is and that a person will grow out of it. No, it's permanent damage. Prenatal alcohol exposure can cause lifelong damage to an individual's brain and body, sensory nervous system. And has an impact on a person's social skills. Another myth that my guests wanted to debunk is that most people with an FASD are violent and uh, will be criminals. And while that is the case for some individuals with FASD, it is not the case for all or even the majority of people with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. You know, in the U.S., 5% of the population of FASD, that's over 17 million people. Certainly, they're not all criminals and they're not all violent. They are your neighbor and my neighbor. They are in every classroom. They're in every place of work. Uh, people with FASD are everywhere in um, our community, and yet they're lonely, stigmatized, and marginalized. And that's something that my guests wanted to talk about, too. I'm so grateful for my friendship with Rebecca and Miranda, and I commend them for their bravery and their compassion and their determination to stand up against the stigma and to raise their voices as advocates for themselves and others with a fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. As you know, if you've been listening to the show that I've been focusing on uh, FASD as a significant global health issue that needs attention. I'm really passionate about that. And that's why I decided to go on a virtual world tour to highlight the issue of fetal alcohol spectrum around the world as well as the tremendous work being done everywhere to re-educate society as to the risks of consuming alcohol during pregnancy, um, that there is no safe amount of alcohol during pregnancy and no safe time, and to advocate for the systemic changes that would recognize fetal alcohol spectrum disorder as a permanent disability and provide support for individuals and their families impacted by prenatal alcohol exposure. So subscribe now so you never miss another episode. And again, thank you for being with me today. If you have any questions or comments about this episode, questions about something that's happening in your own life or ideas for future topics, please write to me at fasdfamilylife at gmail.com. As always, thank you for being with me. I know your time is precious. Please remember that the struggle is real and so is success. I'll speak with you soon.